you're listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Needham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Welcome. You're listening to I Might Be Wrong. I'm Rich. I'm Henry. How are you doing, mate? I'm well. We're in the same room. We are. It's rather nice. We've got fire in the background. We're at yours, not mine. Yeah, a fire, a dog, beer. We'll see whether the dog gets involved in the podcast. Potentially. She does like to. She's, so. got, she's got opinions. <laughs> So we have we have music that is not my choice this week. We have music that is your choice. <laughs> Distancing yourself from this album as much as possible. <laughs> well, you say that like you think that everyone else will agree with me, whereas I think most people will agree with you, at least the ones that listen to this podcast. All right. So the album, um, as you will have seen from the podcast title, <laughs> is In the Aeroplane Over the Sea. Neutral Milk Hotel's 1998 album. And uh, yeah, I think people probably fall into three camps on this one. There's camp number one, which is who the hell are Neutral Milk Hotel? It's probably a quite, quite a lot of people who are in that camp. Yep. Camp two is OMG. They've been an influence on so many bands. They're wonderful. This album is genius. And group three, which is going to be the um, what the hell is all this hype about? which I think you're falling into maybe, but we'll come on to that, I guess. I don't know that I agree that there's three groups there because I think what the hell is all the hype about splits quite heavily. And the vast majority of what the hell is all the hype about are people who actively really hate this album. They hate it with a passion. They write (laughs) blog posts about how shit it is. They get furious at people suggesting that there's any level of musical positivity here whatsoever i don't fall into that camp i don't hate this album i don't really get the hype and the appeal and i think that group is a smaller group because people seem to fall very much into the polarized absolutely adore it or think it's absolute nonsense groups fair so i guess based on what you just said let me go into the the bit of the background yeah and then people can understand who don't know neutral milk hotel where this has all come from because it's spawned all sorts of blog posts and and <laughs> podcasts yeah <laughs> um us being one of them yeah so firstly who are we talking about we're talking about really a, a front man jeff mangum who is but he's the driving force he's basically the guy who is neutral milk hotel i think mm-hmm. his bandmates on this album Julian Costa, Jeremy Barnes and Scott Spillane are an integral part of it, but I think they don't really have any of the creative influence that that Mangum has. I think that's fair. And yeah, so they got together in New York. Mangum was doing his thing before that. So in the early 90s, Mangum and some buddies formed a kind of a collective called Elephant Six, which was kind of this bunch of kind of eclectic music artists doing music for their own enjoyment and not really seeking fame. Yeah, so you've not really said where they're from. This is a group from Atlanta, Georgia, and sorry, Athens in Georgia. That's right. And Athens, from what I gather, was very much the sort of DIY musicians who like to play for the sake of playing music and they play in local bars and 
you know, lots of people all hanging out in very much the same scene where there were lots of people all doing this kind of stuff and just hanging out together. Yeah, exactly. That's um, that's how they formed. And actually, I think, well, we'll come on to what happened to, to Mangum, but I think that's where his heart's always been, is kind of making music for music's sake. So anyway, he recorded his first album in in Denver album called On Avery Island it's kind of uh, I've listened to it a few times it's okay it's an equivalent to say Pablo Honey from Radiohead yeah see all the bare bones you can see where he's going but it's not really a finished product it's funny because it's very definitely the redheaded stepchild of that back catalogue if you were someone who heard this album for the first time and started just digging in a little bit to some of the articles that are written about it, you would have almost no idea that there were any other albums by Neutral Milk Hotel out there. It's so immense and important, and Avery Island is so irrelevant to anything that people talk about when they talk about Neutral Milk Hotel. Yeah, completely. So when Mangum was going to record this in Denver, he was going to catch a flight. The story goes that he was hanging around and either at the airport or just before he got his flight he picked up a copy of um Anne Frank's diaries and he read it and became completely obsessed he sounds like a, a an interesting character but basically became completely obsessed with i guess it's the lost potential of someone who's so so eloquent and you know has just hit a patch of history which she's unfortunate to be on the receiving end of some uh, yeah, kind of war, I guess, and it's just sparked this little creative note, which is a one-off. He wrote this album, and that's it. And he wrote the album during bouts of, I guess, kind of almost night terrors of imagining what she was going through. He mentions time machines in this album, and he's spoken about if he could go back in time to save her and you know get get her out of this mess. And you know, this guy's clearly got completely hooked on on this book and this almost is the starting point of both the mythology of the album but also the heavy criticism because people treat this moment when they're criticizing Mangum and when they're criticizing this album as one of two things they either talk about this almost in the way that oh it's it's so convenient that this thing happened and he's sort of they spin it as he has just looked at what he's written and written a load of information that justifies the album and justifies the art or they will sort of jump on the the emotional vulnerability that he shows over something that is completely detached from him Whereas the the mythological side of things is these people who, you know, will be incredibly entranced by this idea of having that emotional connection with something that that's so deep. Yeah. And let's go back to 1998 when he'd got the album in the can. It got released. Not much fanfare from what I can see. I think journalists acknowledged it. Some thought it was very good. The public didn't really care. They'd planned to sell about 7,000 copies. I don't actually think it sold much more than that when it first came out. Rolling Stone reviewed it and said, Aeroplane is thin-blooded wool-gathering stuff. NME called them earnest and yawnsome 
In fact, I think that was a later review looking back. I don't think Enemy like Neutral Milk Hotel, but they're not an Enemy type band. No. So I think really back in 1998, if if you were wanting to do a podcast about someone, you wouldn't really have these guys on your radar at all. Right. And this is part of my issue with this album generally and the mythology around it is there's an element of revisionist history going on here. <laughs> yes. In the way that we might have touched on this a bit around Radiohead and Kid A and the fact that critics panned it to start or some critics panned it to start with and then 10 years later or 20 years later when they're doing reissues all of a sudden this is getting perfect scores very much the same thing here because you've already mentioned that Rolling Stone were very very meh about it when the album came out when it was reissued they praised it and lauded it and gave it you know it's it's this thing of something becoming so cult that actually it then becomes almost a myth unto itself and it's less about the actual content of the record and more around the myth making and part of that is I'm sure what you're going to go on to talk about which is the disappearance of Mangaman Neutral Milk Hotel. Yeah well in fact why don't we get to that right now because as soon as the album was written we'll come on to it but the, the last thing you hear on the album is a guitar being placed down on the floor and footsteps walking up into the distance and that is it Mangum has not done anything else in his career he's we'll mention touring later but in terms of creative output he's stopped and since the release he vanished so he stayed at home there are some stories of him hoarding rice in preparation for Y2K problems. Um, <laughs> then a guy called Kevin Griffiths, who was a journalist for Creative Loafing, I guess, or a website, tried to find him. Um, and I guess one was one of the people who were responsible for trying to build this myth and tried to get a hold of him. And all he got was an email coming back saying, I'm not an idea. I'm a person who obviously wants to be left alone. If my music's meant anything to you, then you'll respect that. Basically saying... I want to create music, but I want it to create it for music's sake. I don't care about the fame, which is an interesting point when you're putting an album out to the world. There's also an element there of having done that, that just generated more infamy and more fame and more people getting into this album that if there'd been a follow-up 18 months later, they might just be a footnote in American indie history. Yeah, I think you're spot on. Yeah, absolutely. And... Um, in an interview more recently, Mangum was uh, quoted as saying, I went through a period after Aeroplane when a lot of the basic assumptions I held about reality started crumbling. I guess I had this idea that if we all created our dream, we could live happily ever after. So when many of our dreams had come true, and yet I still saw that so many of my friends were in a lot of pain, I realised I can't just sing my way out of all of this suffering. So it sounds as though he's started to see success can't get anything and he's gone he's shut off the musical world from um from himself yeah which i feel sad for him that he didn't feel comfortable continuing to pursue the music and continuing to pursue the art and it's not mangum that i think i have an issue with here i think it's more the cult following and the media that bugs me when it comes to this because i don't feel a connection to this record but then I'm very aware of the fact that there's a huge chunk of 
indie music fans in the UK and the US further afield than that who love this album. I just don't personally get it. Yeah, well, that's a good point because the list of bands queuing up to say that they were influenced by Arcade Fire scream from the rooftops about them being a a real huge influence on their work. Right. You know, there's a lot of bands that I really enjoy who cite Neutral Milk Hotel. Yeah, there are a lot of big bands and I haven't gone right into the back catalogue of who's been influenced by them. But really, if you listen to their sound, you can kind of imagine a lot of fairly big bands being influenced by their kind of style. So, shall I get into the, what they sound like? Because we probably should cover that. We should probably get into that, yes. <laughs> Where do we start? It's kind of folk meets punk meets kind of bonkers lyrics, which are all full of imagery and lyrics that aren't quite complete. So it kind of gives you impressions of things and half-formed visions of of a time. Now, Mangum says it's not a concept album. I kind of disagree <laughs> with him, which is kind of punchy, given that he wrote it. <laughs> um, but he says it's not about Anne Frank and all of that stuff and the war. But so much of this comes out of, I guess, youth and war and just huge seismic cataclysmic things happening that i feel like it is wrapped up in that all one concept of off the back of and Fred's diary that it, well that's that's how i feel but obviously he, he said it wasn't so who am i to say well this is another thing that crops up when you look at the cult fan following take on the album is that the whole idea of the lyrics are leading you into that world part of the criticism is that the lyrics are so deliberately unfinished slightly obscured you can almost read in whatever you want into it which makes it very handy for a you know an album that seems to have been picked up by a lot of people in their teens when you are quite impressionable and you think that some music that you listen to radiohead in my case is incredibly prophetic and profound and again this goes back to one of the issues that i have is that the lyrics are a bit all over the place and yeah they conjure up imagery but a lot of music does that but there's not a theme to it other than some of the Anne frank stuff that i can really follow well let me read you the first three lines of the opening song king of carrot flowers part one which in itself is a crazy name for a song when you were young you were the king of carrot flowers and how you built a tower tumbling through the trees in holy rattlesnakes that fell all around your feet. What the hell is going on there? Right, and I understand that music doesn't have to spell it all out for you, but some of this stuff is so obscure that it almost demands for you to build your own imagery from it. And that's, I think, in defence of this album, the beauty of it, <laughs> because you can just... If you sit alone with this album and you allow your brain just to wander off, he'll throw like in, just in the in this first album, they're they're talking about different ways to die and throwing garbage all across the floor, and we'll lay and learn what each other's bodies are for, and all sorts of crazy things. You can just daydream into this album, and I think that's the beauty of it. And I think that's where the split comes because you're someone who 
has listened to this album and felt a really close connection to that stuff and and felt like the lyrics are really meaningful in a way that it provokes your imagination whereas it's left me sort of cold and I came across this album when it was released in 98-99. I had a friend in sick form who loved this album and gave me a copy and I remember listening to it a couple of times and then moving on to something else because it it just didn't really grab me. I was actually the opposite so I was I came across this when Domino reissued it back in 2005. The reason that I came onto it was because it was on a an American Airlines playlist. Mm-hmm. Obviously, back then, when you were stuck on a flight, you didn't have your phone playing your music, or you you know you could probably get a Walkman out of your bag. But you'd plug in and and listen to the the airline's song list. And funnily enough, in the aeroplane over the sea which where is where I was was playing and I think that was a like a little hook I think it was on it was on some really bland midwest american radio style station and it was all just nothing and then this sat in the middle of this with this guy we haven't mentioned the way he, the singing style he can't sing very well it sounds like he's trying to force songs out of his nose when he sings it's just this kind of nasal yeah, if you're a singing coach, you'd have a lot to say about this. And and <laughs> yeah. that'll put a lot of people off. But it, it just went straight to my ears. It was like, what the hell is this? Well, this is one of the things that I have an issue with how I feel about this album. Not necessarily a criticism of the album, but as someone who loves Bob Dylan and Radiohead, <laughs> yeah. I have no issue with difficult singing voices. But Mangum's voice hurts my ears. I find myself physically cringing away from some of the songs in terms of his delivery. So you've already mentioned King of Carrot Flowers 1. 2 and 3 is an absolute mess, and part of that mess is the vocal delivery of it. It sounds like an early demo where they expected to completely redo it and polish it. Uh, Yeah, I I can't disagree with that. The second song is a... um it's hard to listen to it gets going and it's just you get hit with this wall of drums and noise and and just all sorts there are horns flying around and there's hugely distorted bass which is going to wreck your speakers if they're turned up too loud it's a really hodgepodge of i don't know just half-baked ideas flying out of the speakers and i completely understand especially with King of Carrot Flowers Part 2 and 3, which is another weird name for a song. I can understand why that would put someone off. Well, it's just the fact that it feels incredibly amateurish and like something that should have been recorded as an early take and then come back to and gone, right, we like the bones of this. We need to do something better with it. And rather than that, they've just lumped it onto the album. Yeah, and, you know, we'll we'll leap back to this again and again probably, but (laughs) this kind of capturing of this one moment and of this one album and of this concept sorry jeff this concept of an idea that almost sounds like it's been recorded in an afternoon i think that's kind of cool but like in 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 a similar way not not too similar but when nirvana did their mtv unplugged in new york session it's got a very distinctive style let's be very clear neutral milk hotel are not on nirvana's level uh yeah that's uh well i did not yeah go on (laughs) i understand the cult following but i'm sorry i'm not i'm not allowing that the thing for me with this is this is not an artist 
in their pomp recording something where they're given some leeway to do a live rough round the edges recording this is the first thing that really got them any kind of notice and maybe this is the reason why they're kind of or neutral milk hotel are kind of thought of in these kind of slightly hushed tones because you kind of think what could have been you hear this like completely half recorded half baked thing and then he vanishes and you think well they could have recorded a something better i don't know um anyway yeah and again i understand that that adds to the mysticism and the cult of neutral milk hotel which is a terrible name by the way (laughs) (laughs) it's it's just not a good indie band name no i've never thought it sat well but then you kind of get the feeling that they didn't really want it to sell records (laughs) and actually if you listen to the way that Mangum reacted to a music journalist trying to ask for an interview. Yeah. That to me sounds like someone who really isn't interested act- or is actively disinterested in the music community taking notice of him. Right. And that's a, an interesting <laughs> angle on all of this stuff is the difference between Mangum and how he views all of this stuff and the cult fans of Mangum and how they view this stuff. <laughs> we should dive into songs yeah. though because we're a good half an hour in and we haven't even got there yet well let's just rattle through some some ones to listen out for so we've mentioned king of carrot flowers part one beautiful acoustic introduction then it's got some harmonies just building in in the last half of the song which i think is one of the most beautiful songs written in a long time it completely captivated me when i first heard it it's one of my favorite songs on the album in fact it's what it is my favorite of his And I can't disagree with you there because this is the thing that frustrates me about this album so much is there are a handful of tracks on here that are stunning. They're beautifully written, they're brilliantly delivered, the musicianship's great, but they're scattered in amongst a lot of shambolic stuff. Yeah, and that's a a fair statement because, yeah, we've mentioned the next one, Carrot Flowers 2 and 3, which is all over the place. After that, (laughs) In the Aeroplane Over the Sea, which is the one I heard first, and that it's kind of lilting it's it's this it's almost a ballad it's got singing saws and horns in and it, it's a lovely little song I'm a, I'm a fan of this one I think this deserves some level of cult status because of the use of instrumentation in this that wasn't really being used in the mainstream anywhere at this point there might have been some American folk music and country music they use some level of this instrumentation back in you know the 70s maybe but it was far from the mainstream and one of the things about Neutral Milk Hotel that you've mentioned is their influences on bands that followed on from them and bands taking all of these quirky and unusual instruments and using them in ways that were more competent maybe than this album shows yeah yeah that's fair and this is a song that really does that beautifully yeah and again with this kind of half-baked imagery but for now we are young let us lay in the sun and count every beautiful thing we can see and and when he sings it it's just it's a lovely little way of expressing yeah cool stuff so after that we go on to two-headed boy which is I guess a well-known song. Rich gives it a big thumbs down. <laughs> I, I think the problem with this one is his voice. This is where you hear the kind of nasal tones. The voice hurts my ears and the guitar playing. It's like someone that's just <laughs> learning and they're just sort of chopping away at the strings rather than playing it with any level of skill. And it 
it just annoys me more than anything. And the counterbalance to that is the chord sequences and the progression is wonderful. It's a lovely, lovely way of recording a song. It's got this beautiful kind of melody. And it's a funny way of listening to a song because you've got this kind of almost harshness, which you've just alluded to, plus this beauty kind of scattered amongst it. And it's almost like that harshness from the guitar being a bit raw almost makes you listen to the the music more. I don't know. It hooks me in. It, I, I, can't, I can't quite explain it. And that's fair. Again, it's one of those things where you're struggling to explain sometimes why you think these songs stand out and sometimes I'm struggling to explain why they just didn't grab me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and again, for music and styles that generally I like and other bands that have similar styles that I love. Yeah, weird. Um, I'll, I'll mention a couple more. Um, Holland 1945, just because it's a kind of this bombastic, brilliant song. Um, absolutely bonkers lyrics. Uh, the only girl I've ever loved was born with roses in her eyes. I don't know what that means, but, you know, <laughs> fair enough. And he talks about little boys in Spain playing pianos filled with flames. Rolls off the tongue brilliantly. Again, is bonkers, but it's got this full-powered, throwing the kitchen sink at it kind of live feel, which which I think is is great. And it, I don't know where this sits in terms of musical style. It's not really indie it's not punk it's not folk because it's way too punchy for that uh, I, I don't know i don't know where i'd place it i couldn't pigeonhole this song i think it's an intersection of the three it's it sort of takes elements of all of those and this is a song again that i like even though it's a bit rough around the edges it's not so rough that it's painful it's a song that has a lot of energy and charisma to it in a way that some of the others on the album don't for me and this is one that did grab my attention this is one that I really enjoyed when I first listened to the album and wished there was more like it on the album yeah. and maybe that was my issue back when I was what 16 and listening to it the first time yeah and and I get your point because after this come a bunch of songs which are, are less good dare I say it's a filler and then you get to two-headed boy part two the very last song of the album and he finishes by saying, you know, she will feed you tomatoes and radio wires. I don't know what that means. And then he says, but don't hate her when she gets up to leave. That's the last line on the album. The guitar goes down. The footsteps walk off into the distance. You kind of a bit, you're a bit puzzled as to what all of that meant. And that's the end <laughs> of Neutral Milk Hotel. And again, I, I like this as a song. I think it's a lovely way to finish the album. I'm intrigued by the fact that you haven't touched on... Oh Cumley, because that gets so much cult love. Yeah, I I think the reason I don't like that is when we were talking about some of the previous songs, you've got this this lovely kind of songwriting, um, songcraft and uh, and really clever musicianship. And Oh Cumley is almost a kind of it's a it's a basic melody, it's a basic ballad. And that gets overwhelmed by his voice, which just really gets into your head a bit. And I think that's probably why I don't like it so much, because, yeah, the, the balance of the seesaw tips <laughs> kind of in the direction of the fatty. Right. And it's 
I think that's where I'm at with this one as well, because it's an eight minute long song and it does go on a bit. <laughs> yeah. But equally, there's a bit at the end where you can hear one of the other musicians in the background go, holy shit, very, very quietly if you turn it up. Uh, and that's something that I'd seen online, people calling out that holy shit of like, oh, we've just recorded something incredibly beautiful and wonderful and profound. And I'm like, it's a nice song. Yeah. I've daydreamed to this album a lot and I can imagine being in that moment if you're recording it kind of in 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 the flesh it being a big deal right so anyway that's that's the album and then as we say they had this vanishing act and really that was that was it so 2005 it was reissued uh it became the sixth biggest selling vinyl of 2008 so it really picked up speed. I mean, vinyl wasn't the thing it is today back in 2008. I think I saw actually the other day that vinyl's now gone above all other forms of... It's now selling more than CDs right. and anything else. Um, mini disc, does that happen? Um, anyway, <laughs> I, I digress. But anyway... Cassettes are a thing, apparently, again. I've seen people selling them. Jesus. Yeah. Good luck with a pencil and rewinding oh, that. God, yeah. Yeah, so it was a big deal in 2008. They regrouped in 2013 2014 they, they toured and if you're wondering if we're making a if we're kind of overselling the cult status they came to london they sold out the roundhouse three nights in a row that's big right that's yeah. selling out the roundhouse one night is big big bands come through and, and we'll sell it out for a couple of nights three in a row that's a big deal yeah absolutely it's the kind of thing that only Bands with a really strong core following can do that. Yeah. So that's the kind of level that they're at. Did you see them live? No. And, I, and in fact, thinking back, I'm kind of annoyed that I'd, I'd missed them. Um, there's some brilliant live chats about them, though. The haphazardness on the album is mirrored in, in real life. So on their early shows, the audio techs were kind of confused because there were so many instruments and there was just so much chaos on stage mm -hmm. they weren't quite sure what was being played how to get the level sorted it was all a bit mad so they took with them <laughs> an extra person someone called laura carter who took on the role of mix board translator and her job <laughs> was basically talking through the sound desk about what's going to happen because there's so much happening on stage so she would be able to point to them just when some piece of equipment was about to blow through everyone's eardrums. She could jump on one of those instruments and make sure they could grab the levels and bring it back into line. So it's this kind of, that haphazardness is not a, uh, it's a made up thing. It's just, This is just the way that they record their music. Right, yeah. And honestly, I think if you had a perfectly polished live show, people would be disappointed. Because that's not what you want from this this band and this album. Agree. And if you look at the the chat from the live reviews, everyone's come away thinking it's. I mean, you know, they're, they're fans, right? But they've all said <laughs> it, it was a brilliant kind of you know mega evening. And I've been to big. I mean, we've mentioned the postal service. I was went into that so excited and came away disappointed. Yeah. But it sounds like a lot of people went to this and came away excited. So that's good. Nice. So you mentioned that you came to this after university rather than before. So you'd already have had quite a lot of the bands that 
were influenced by Neutral Milk Hotel as bands that you'd been listening to for a while. Correct. So how does the influence work here? Is it purely that you knew that these guys were such a big influence and then you picked it up, listened to it and loved it? And so there's sort of a circular influential thing going on there? I don't know. I had no idea about any of them. I didn't know about the influences. And even when I listened to the album, I didn't know that bands like Arcade Fire had referenced them and said that it was great. It was me purely listening to this when it was reissued. And for some reason I was hooked. And I, I guess it's this combination of almost fantastical lyrics and some of the songs being really wonderful. Again, King of Carrick, Flowers Part 1, just lovely. And I think that was enough to hook me in. But you're right, it was it was almost, yeah, just a, a one-off. And then I realised where they sat in the timeline of, of music. And then you realise the bands they've influenced. And then you realise this little backstory. Suddenly it becomes a quite a fun thing to get into. But I didn't see any of that when I first heard it in yeah, 2005. Okay. Interesting. Because you were you were different. Because you said you'd listened to it in in the nineties. Yeah. So I had listened to it a few times at school, but it, it never became enough of my listening base to have influenced me in that way. Not back then. And even when I've gone back to it over the years. It just, it never, it's never grabbed me. It has never grabbed me. It's always been like a, yeah, this is a nice listen. This one hurts my ears. (laughs) Some of these tracks are lovely, but there's never been enough there to grab me and make me listen to the whole album. And lyrically, it leaves me a little bit cold. It's not that I don't understand how it can be appealing. It's just that for me, it isn't. And so, yeah, they're not an influence for me, but I appreciate their influence on a lot of bands that I love. Well, I think we'll have to agree to disagree because this is stone cold in my top 20 albums of all time easily. And I think really this is one for our audience who will have to go and make up their own minds if they haven't already. Absolutely. And I do suspect we'll get some comments on this one from (laughs) some of the folks on facebook who will have opinions i think we might do i think i think i'm probably going to be backed a little more than you are oh i suspect that will be the case (laughs) awesome (laughs) all right thanks everyone for joining us this week if you haven't already go and rate and review the podcast on whatever podcatcher you're using because it helps other people find us and if you want to come and chat to us and tell us that henry is entirely right and i'm an idiot on facebook on twitter on instagram even we are at i might be wrong uk you can find us there thanks everyone thank you cheers henry thank you for listening to another episode of i might be wrong